from the Finley Toyota Studio, it's Cofield and Company. You throw a gif on there? Oh, if I throw a gif? Like, that means something. I love bears doing human things. Right. I don't like bears being bears. Right. We're not going to do handwritten notes. God, no. Jesus. It's time for Cofield and Company with Steve Cofield on ESPN Las Vegas. Adam, are you going to bet the Masters? Oh, no. I'm being greeted with silence again in hour number two. All right. I'm here. Okay. I think we're good. We're just messing with you, Steve. I think he was zoning. Are you going to bet the Masters? Um, I will probably live bet it, just like I do everything now. Uh, I don't necessarily know who I want to play. I'll, I'll probably find maybe a bet or two somewhere along the way. Aren't um, you gun shy after trying to just grab all, grab all the bags, as the kids say? Is that how they say it? I don't know. Whatever. With yeah. your middle plays all the time, your True. middle blew up right in your face last night. Well, when it blows up, all you do is break even, right? I mean, it's not like you lose. I think that's the that's the key. Yes, I turned winning bets. Uh, every bet I made pregame won. Every bet I made in the game lost. So I think you would say, well, just bet pregame. But um, I just feel like there's opportunities. Like the, the, what, if the you lose, what, if, what if you lose your discipline when you're trying for the middle and then you start betting more on the uh, opposite side from where you started? Because that's what I did. Yeah. It's like, I know Gonzaga's going to come back. And then every time it got to 12 or 10, and Baylor's like, all right, three baskets, you're back out to 16. Sorry. It, it doesn't, it doesn't you're, you're happen often. Of 10. You're not getting this inside of 10, Zags. Yeah, you've just got to try to, you know, you've got to try to stay within. Like, I, I wanted to take it again at plus 12 and a half, but I didn't. Um, so I'm glad I didn't do that. Uh, but that, I mean, that is the key to, to kind of managing this a little bit and try to, to try to play this way is to not get completely out of control. I did. Uh, I learned in the uh, Arizona UConn women's game. Like I kept thinking UConn would make a run at some point, and they just never did. And the line was out of control. It was, I mean, throughout the game, Arizona basically maintained a ten point lead the entire game, and even you know eight minutes left in the game, Arizona by eleven, UConn was still minus one. And I, I had been chasing it for so long. I was like, all right. At some point, I made a bet or two on, on Stanford on the other side, or excuse me, on Arizona on the other side. It won a little back, but I lost on that game. Uh, but, yeah, it, it sucks when you have a game like last night where you had it right, you should have won everything that you put in, and you give it all back in-game. But it's much better when you actually hit that middle or you, you know, even better, you have a loser to start the game and you turn it into a break-even or a winner. That's nice. You just got to take the good with the bad. Last night, that was bad because you, know, you turn winners into, into break-evens, and that's tough to do. It's time for The Three, presented by Nova Home Loans. Call now at 877-700-NOVA. So Adam dumped a little cold water all over me as I was all fired up. I was out today covering UNLV practice. We're talking Masters. You know, the weather's getting nicer. Uh, maybe after freaking nearly 13 months. We're getting closer to normal. But then, you know, then there's a wake-up call, like the story in Vancouver with the Canucks just ravaged by some strain of COVID. And then there's the Nationals who didn't get on the field this weekend in Major League Baseball. They finally got on the field. 
but it, with a very patchwork squad. Yeah, 10 guys on the injured list uh, that they had to try to navigate and, and work through. And then they just started, like, signing guys, uh, you know, hoping somebody would work out for them today. Um, it's just – it's a mess. And it, it just sucks that, you know, they had to be in this position. And, you know, you, you, the, like, the whole thing of opening day is this optimism and this excitement for every team in the league. And you're like, oh, man, everybody's even. Everybody's got a chance. And then not only do the Nationals, you know, start off later than everybody else, they have to start off without most of their roster. Like, the opening day is the day you're supposed to have everybody. It's supposed to be your lineup. Like, that, this is the guys for the whole season. And yet the Nationals have to go out and basically, like, sign Jonathan Lucroy again to, you know, to put him out on the field and, and play and just to kind of put a patchwork lineup together. So uh, they're out there. They're trying. Uh, they rallied. They fell behind early. It was 3 nothing. Uh, they rallied back to tight at four. Now they've fallen behind in the seventh. Uh, but I guess good that they're at least out on the field finally. Uh, but it just, you know, this is the day where you look back and say, you know, everybody is supposed to be optimistic and excited and, and happy. And it's, it's you know, the opening day lineup is who's supposed to be your starters. Like, that's your guys. And instead, you know, it's kind of a patchwork system they got there. Marlon Acuna with two home runs for the Braves. And as Adam said, Middle seven, five four. Scherzer started for the Nats, went six, struck out nine, but five hits and four runs. So uh, hopefully the Nats can get through this. Everyone stays healthy. There's no long term damage. So last night, Baylor wins a national championship. Good team, all time great team. I don't know. I don't think so. But that's what we do now. You know, anytime there's an outstanding performance, we have uh, people run to social media and start talking about. All-time great teams. I, I will say, and I mentioned this. I think it was maybe it was yesterday. I saw the list of you know all-time great teams, and 1990 UNLV was on there, and 91 Duke was on there. And I pointed out quickly, like 91 Duke is not an all-time great team. No. They pulled off a monumental upset. UNLV 90 and 91 are all-time great teams. And for folks around the country who are listening to uh, you know different sports radio and and casuals who cover college basketball for a month. UNLV should never be mentioned in the same breath. I guess I would flip it. Baylor, congrats on your championship. They're not UNLV from 1990. It was it was a matchup that went the wrong way for a game for Gonzaga. Baylor looked bigger and stronger, dominated the boards. But Baylor's not an all-time great team, nor is Gonzaga a fraud or a flop. <laughs> Please stop with that. If it's one nothing right now, Adam Hill, in a seven-game series, like the NBA, right? Baylor and Gonzaga are going to play every couple of days. Can Gonzaga win the series? Now, I will say, me, me presenting that premise, I'm sure a lot of people are like, what? Win the series? Did you watch last night? Clearly, Baylor is much better. Gonzaga's a fraud. For nothing. Like, no. No. And Adam's answer that I started screaming over was? Of course they can win the series. In fact... They might be a slight favorite in the series. Still, even after last night's game. I, I mean, I think it might switch just because it's one nothing. Uh, I'm sure the money would flow as you're as you're suggesting, completely in the favor of Baylor. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it would be very close. Very close. But I again, actually agree. I agree, and I think the narrative out of last night's game would have been, "Hey, their playoff series just before this that was very emotional." And they came out flat for game one. 
But we don't think of, well, we do. The masses don't think of basketball, college basketball, you know, with a, a seven-game series in mind or ten games or even two games in mind. So, yeah, I think that – I think Baylor last night was better than Gonzaga. Do I think they're the better team? I'm not sure. I would love to see him play over the course of two weeks, see the coaching adjustments. That's another thing. There were a lot of things that Mark Few couldn't get accomplished last night, and as the series goes along, you learn, you make adjustments – I think it would be a hell of a series, but I think there's a lot of people out there who are like, Gonzaga didn't belong. Baylor is much better, and it would be a four nothing series. You, right. you want me to go you want me to go full Adam for a second? Do it. Uh I would also suggest to your point of you know the narrative about the previous series. I would say Gonzaga would have won the next four games against or next three games against UCLA pretty easily. And Baylor oh, may have game, had if that was game one. Yeah, and Baylor may have had a bigger struggle with Houston in the previous series, and Gonzaga would have been in a better position in game one uh, to not have to deal with it. That is full, Adam. You can't do that on Twitter. (laughs) You do that on Twitter, that's going to turn into days and days of bickering. Of course. But I'm not going to sit here and fight, John. I think Baylor is very good, but I think there are some areas that uh, you could exploit Baylor in. I don't think Baylor is going to shoot like that all the time coming out of the gates. And, And here's the bigger thing is, Bashing Gonzaga is stupid. Um, chanting Big 12 is also stupid. I saw a lot of that last night. Like, well, when you go through the gauntlet of the Big 12, you mean like TCU and Iowa State and Kansas State, who UNLV beat Kansas State at Kansas State on the heels of a Maui slash Asheville tournament where they were reeling. Yeah. The bottom of the Big 12 sucks. Now is, are there six or seven good programs in the Big 12? Yes. Is it better? Then the West Coast Conference, yes. Did most people who were saying Gonzaga didn't belong ever look at or even make an effort to look at Gonzaga's schedule during the year? No. No. So when you've got casuals who are saying Gonzaga never played anything like that all season, they beat, they beat Kansas, who beat Baylor. <laughs> they destroyed Virginia. They beat West Virginia, and they took one of the best offensive teams in the country out of sorts and matched them head-to-head offensively in Iowa. It wasn't a great game. Baylor's the national champion. It deserves it. We'll continue a little later in the show on a little defense of Gonzaga. And believe me, I don't root for Gonzaga. Gonzaga is not the you know the little engine that could, um, and we will get to what next year is going to look like because we actually had a media member who was like, man, you know, poor Mark Few. Who knows if Gonzaga is ever going to have a team like this again? Nova Home Loans brings you the three. It's a refi raid at Nova Home Loans. With interest rates at all-time lows, now's the time to talk to your local Nova loan officer. 877-700-NOVA. It's time for Cofield and Company's Path to the Draft. Brought to you by Battle Board Injury Lawyers. Need legal advice? Call 570 9000. All right, we're up to the 14th pick in the draft. It's the Vikings, and uh, we love talking to this guy as he does uh, K Fan Radio, played in the NFL, play, played high level college football. Ron Johnson is up with Cofield and Company. What's going on? You know, nothing back, sitting back, watching a little TV, playing some Monopoly, and getting some work done. All right. <laughs> I, I know you had a bracket for the tournament. 
And uh, I'm sure you have thoughts on what you saw last night. My partner and I, Adam Hill, uh, were just sort of defending, more than defending, Gonzaga. Uh, we thought Baylor did a good job last night, but I don't think Gonzaga sucked because of that game. Uh, what do you think of the game, and uh, what do you think of college basketball right now? Well, I mean, I think college basketball is doing just fine. Uh, I think they, you know, they had to deal with what everybody else dealt with this past year it was COVID. So, you know, new structures, a bubble. Um, you know, for some kids that are going to be NBA caliber kids, they're mentally, you know, they mentally were dialed in. They were fine. Um, some teams did a better job than others. But, you know, at the end of the day, when you look at Gonzaga, you know, a kid Jalen uh, Suggs out of Minnesota. So he's from this area. I played with his uncle, uh, Terrell Suggs. And so when you when you see what he's done since probably, I've probably seen this kid since he was a sixth, seventh grader. And, uh, you know, he's everything that, he's, that, that, that everybody says he is. You know, he's a great passer. He's a great seer of the floor. You know, great facilitator. He gets everybody involved in the game. Um, I just think, honestly, I think, you know, and a lot of people try to equate it to when the Vikings, you know, had the Minneapolis miracle against the Saints and then they laid an egg against the uh, Eagles. I think it's a little bit of that. You know, you, you have a big moment and then you have to find a way to recreate that energy. And you just have a team that physically is bigger than you. They're more, you know, I guess, uh, um, I don't even know the word. Like, I saw a tweet that, that kind of summed it up. You know, Gonzaga's good at basketball, but Baylor's basketball players lift with the football team. You know, it just seemed like a bigger, stronger, meaner team on the floor. And the team in Gonzaga, they kind of, you know, some of their shots you can see looks like they didn't have their legs under them. It just didn't seem like what we saw for most of the tournament. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what it is. You have to have a big comeback like that and then go, you know, go into overtime to win it and then a big shot like that to end the game. It's tough, but I think overall, Gonzaga, you know, who knows? And Jalen Suggs, everybody's assuming he's going to leave because Kay Cunningham is technically right now the number one pick, and you got Jalen Suggs right behind him at number two, um, or vice versa if the Timberwolves have it. I don't know why, if I'm a Timberwolves front office guy, I wouldn't want to take a hometown kid to sell tickets at least because um, nobody's going to the game regardless of COVID. Um, but if you look at what they could possibly do if he were to come back, getting Chet Holmgren, you know, his high school teammate, um, seven-foot kid that can shoot the ball at another score, I could see Jalen possibly coming back. You know, I don't see why Chet Holmgren would go there without a Jalen Suggs. Um, and so maybe that's why he committed because Jalen told him, like, man, I don't know why everybody's sending him coming out. I'm going to stay for one more year. So, Well, you know, for a guy who uh, you know has been reported to be one and done, he certainly cared after the game because he was very emotional losing that game. And, you, you know, you could look at him and go, hey, what does he care? He's going to the NBA. So I thought that was interesting. I will tell you this. I've heard all about the bigger, stronger Baylor team. Uh, there wasn't a moment during that game when Suggs was on the floor when I wasn't thinking that's the NBA player on the floor. That's the guaranteed NBA guy, not the guys on Baylor. They will have NBA careers, some of them. Suggs is awesome. Any time that he wanted to go left and get to the basket, he could do it. He is he is a great athlete. I want to I want to ask you about Holmgren because I it's interesting. He's the number one player in the country. Uh, he's skinny, right? And I heard uh, yep. Brock York play in the NFL making a case for this on satellite radio, and he was talking about that whole thing about, uh, you know, Gonzaga may not be lifting with the football team, and he almost made the suggestion that next year Gonzaga may be really good, but they're going to have another 7-1, you know, 200-pound guy in the middle. Are they going to be physical enough? It almost sounded like, hey, they shouldn't want Chet Holmgren. I'm like, bro, I think you better be careful. That guy's going to be – however long he stays at Gonzaga, if he does go there, he's going to be freaking awesome. What about that in terms of the physicality – and what Gonzaga is bringing in in Holmgren? Yeah, I mean he's he's definitely not a middle guy. I mean just because he's seven feet, I think guys like Kevin Durant, uh, you know Porzingis, they've changed the 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 mindset of what a seven footer can be. 
And so, you know, I think Chet Holmgren is more of like a, a swing 3-4 type guy. You know, he he can be in the middle, but, I mean, even up against Eden Prairie last year when they lost to Eden Prairie, who was the undefeated team uh, in the state of Minnesota, and Drake Dobbs, who's now over at uh, uh, Liberty, uh, their point guard, number zero, um, you know, when you look at the team that Eden Prairie had, they had a guy that was 6'6", a guy that was 6'5", and another guy that was 6'6". So easily, if I'm seven feet, I'm dominating somebody 6'6", but he could not get close enough to the basket because they were just bigger and stronger than him, and they were pushing him out the lane, and they were taking turns. You know, they brought one of their football players in as well to just push him and bully him a little bit. And so I think that's that's part of the game. But then you look at a guy like Jalen Suggs, you mentioned it. Yeah, he he's different. He played quarterback in high school. He has a football body. Um, you know, he reminds me a little bit of, you know, he has that Cam Newton type body um, that, you know, on the basketball court, he's bigger and stronger than everybody on the football court or in the football field. He's faster than a lot of linemen and so, or linebackers. And so that's, that's what you're going to get out of a guy like Chet Holmgren. I don't think he's your guy that's going to put his back to the basket. He's not a, he's not going to be like Timmy. Um, you know, he's going to be a different, he's a, he's a unicorn, you know, he's, he's a different kind of guy. Um, and just like the kid out, I'm from Michigan, and just like the kid, I can't think of his name right now, but the kid out of Michigan, the other six, seven, six, eight kid that just won Gatorade Player of the Year, first time for a sophomore to do it. Same thing, you know. There's these unicorns out there that we're trying to put them into a box and say, this is what position you should play. No, this kid, you know, right. I think oh, what is his name? I'm drawing a blank, but you know, I think that kid's like a, a point guard, but he's six eight. You know, and then you turn around and you got Chet Holmgren who can dribble. You know, he's not a seven-foot back-to-the-basket guy. You know, you get a guy like that and just say, you're on the floor. Let's go out here and play this game. And I think the Warriors showed us that, that you don't have to have a big five, a strong four, a shooting three that can defend, and then two guards. You know, you put the best players on the court, and as a coach, your job is to create the offense for that that group of five. And I think that's what um, Gonzaga's done. You know, that's what they show they can do. You give me five guys, and I can show you what I can do. I mean, he had two point guards on the court, um, and we saw how well that worked. You know, Jalen Suggs plays off the ball when he has to, but now you have two guys that are great passers that can get the ball into the post and make that entry pass, whereas a shooting guard probably is not your best entry pass guy. And that's why Gonzaga confused a lot of people and, and won so many games because, you know, they had a system that worked for them. Ron Johnson's with us, played in the NFL, played for the Gophers, uh, Minnesota football. Let's talk some Vikings football. Uh, I feel like uh, Minneapolis is a lot like Las Vegas now, and we spend a lot of time talking about our quarterback. And you've got a guy there like we have here in Vegas who is good, but he's not consensus like top six. So Kirk Cousins is the subject of offseason conversation the entire offseason. Yeah, Kirk (laughs) Kirk Cousins has been, you know, that's been the thing here about Kirk Cousins ever since he signed an $84 million contract, and then you fast-forward a couple days, and he's no longer the highest paid anymore. Then he's barely in the top ten anymore. No matter what, people are always going to go back to one. You know, never winning on Monday night football, finally getting the monkey off of his back. You know, um, looking at games like the Falcons game where the Falcons come in winless without a head coach, and everybody assumes, okay, you should kill the Falcons. Kirk Cousins' first play of the game throws the interception to the linebacker in the clear read is dumped off to the running back. So there are things that Kirk Cousins does really well, and that was under Kevin Stefanski. You know, and you look at what Baker Mayfield did under Kevin Stefanski. He's really good at getting the quarterback out the pocket, creating a secondary pocket so the defensive line can't just be down on one person. They can't, you know, just sit down and say, okay, this is the guy we have to worry about. Um, or this is the, sorry, this is the passing lane or the rush lane we need to worry about. Well, 
Now you take out Kubiak, you add Clint Kubiak, who's the son. You get a youth kind of movement in that, um, you know, offensive room. You know, you, you have a younger quarterbacks coach now and that group that's been around Kirk Cousins. And, and I've been there as a coach with the coach for two years as an assistant, you know, grunt worker, basically. And when you think about the guy doing the grunt work, you have way more respect and you're willing to listen to the superstars, especially the starting quarterback. And so then when you get that role years later as, you know, their counterpart or even their, you know, hey, we're going to work together on this, you have a little bit more respect for them. You have more, you, not, not respect and disrespect, but more so respect and, hey, what, what do you think is going to work? Hey, what do you want to do here? And you're more willing to listen to them and let them create. You know, and that's where I think Kirk Cousins lacked. You didn't see a lot of innovation as far as on his part. You didn't see a lot of kills and check with me's. You didn't see a lot of recreation at the line of scrimmage where he's doing a bunch of hand movements, trying to create a new play. Um, you basically saw a guy lining up, maybe making a check or maybe making a you know a, a opposite call, and then hiking the ball and going. Nine times out of ten, he was hiking the ball and going, and people are like, "Why did you do that?" And you see a linebacker about the blitz. You know, I don't think he had a ton of freedom. And I think maybe that was one of the issues that people don't realize is what Kirk Cousins has dealt with or dealt with last year for sure. So can they take the next step with him under center? Yeah. I mean, like I said, when you add the new Kubiak in there, Clint is a younger guy. He understands. He likes fun innovation. Now, how much is Zimmer going to give him? Because that's always been a question of Zimmer adding older coaches uh, to make him feel more comfortable about the situation when he added Dom Capers and then he added Kubiak to work with Stefanski because Stefanski was his first year, even though it was his 16th or 15th season. You know, he's like, hey, let's get a veteran voice in here to help you out. You know, I think that's going to be the question is how much freedom does Clint Kubiak have to run this offense? If he has complete freedom and autonomy, I think Kirk Cousins will thrive because you're going to have a guy that's thirsty to look like the Chiefs and do some cool things, look like the Saints, motion guys out, create mismatches for Dalvin Cook. Um, I, I personally believe Dalvin Cook in space is just like Alvin Kamara. Uh, I think he's a little bit stronger as far as breaking the tackle. Uh, Kamara is a little bit better at route running and, and probably hands. Um, but Cook is a better, you know, he's a guy that's going to break a tackle a little bit better. Um, I, I could see a lot of that being used. You know, the screen game was the huge part of their offense. We didn't see a ton of that. You know, there wasn't a ton of screens, and that's what this whole smaller offensive line was supposed to do. Um, and we didn't see that. And whether it was position of games, timing of the game, you know, not being in the right position to call it because we're, you know, either playing from behind or we don't trust our defense to, you know, be in a hole and, and hope our defense is going to get us out of it. Um, you know, a lot of that has to go into play. Again, I'm not in that meeting room. I don't really know what's going on, but I do think Kirk Cousins can definitely thrive um, with if Kubiak is willing to get, you know, more creative and have a little bit more. Because we know it's going to be as bad two tight end type system. But if he can get a little bit creative, move Irv Smith around, let him get you know some mismatches where if you see a safety or linebacker covering Irv Smith, you got to go to him. If you see a corner, maybe you motion him back in, and then you run the ball where he can block a smaller cornerback better than he can block a DN. And so that's where you have to use him like a move tight end, kind of like you see a little bit of Travis Kelsey, George Kittle moves a lot, um, where you're just looking for the mismatch. So draft is coming up for the Vikings. Uh, are we thinking edge rusher or offensive line? Is that the two biggest priorities? Yeah, for sure. I mean, Daniel Hunter's neck, you don't know what's going to happen with a herniated disc in the neck. Um, so, you know, how healthy is he? Uh, when you look at the offensive line, definitely could add some, you know, an offensive tackle there. But, again, is the right guy there? Originally, after the Patrick Peterson and, and Alexander McKenzie 
uh, signing, we assumed, okay, they're good at corner, and then Jeff Gladney turns himself in for domestic abuse. And so, you know, what is that going to look like? If, if these reports are true, um, you know, I don't think he's back. You know, that that's a tough, especially in today's fishbowl of Twitter and everything else in society, um, it's going to be really tough. I mean, you look at Ray Rice and what he had to deal with and, you know, how hard it was, and he never, you know, made it back. But then you also look at guys like Tyreek Hill, where after going to court and getting his name cleared and doing whatever. Um, so it's really going to be up to the courts and, and what story is told in the end, what this young lady, you know, finishes with, whether she's, you know, coerced or paid or whatever ends up happening. Um, that's going to be Jeff Gladney's fate. And so if the Vikings feel like they're not going to have him back, because then even if he is back, then what does the NFL do? Do they suspend him for eight games? Do they suspend him for a season? Um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot going on there that we don't really know what's going to happen. And so when you look at that, you could see them going with if Patrick Sertain sitting there at 12 or 13, do you trade up and go get you a franchise first-round pick because Jeff Gladney was supposed to be that and he did not turn out to that? And you do have a Cameron Dantzler that you got in later rounds that end up being better. He ended up being your starting corner. And so, you know, Mike Hughes, same thing. He's probably going to get cut due to injury if he can't come back for the same issue of a neck. Um, so it, it, that's the tough thing right now in the next, you know, two or three weeks. I know tomorrow I'm headed over to the Vikings facility to shoot um, a segment about receivers. And, you know, I, I interviewed Brian Billick from the NFL Network, and we did some for the Vikings.com. If you want to go to Vikings.com and check it out. But Brian drafted Randy Moss in 1998, and he already had Chris Carter and Jake Reed, and he bought that up. And he said, you know, our, our defense wasn't that good in 98. <laughs> and he said, but when we realize that we can put 20, 21 points up on you before you even blink, who cares? And that's another thought. You know, do you go get another if, if Chase, if Chase, um, uh, Jamar Chase is there, or if Rashad Bateman, if you think he's maybe your guy to add as far as speed and, you know, kid ran a 4 3 9 and everybody questioned his speed. Well, that answer is can he go deep? And now you add a deep speed guy that's tall. I mean, Rashad is legit 6'2, 6'1, 6'2. And so, um, now you possibly say, you know what, let's just take the best guy on the board. I mean, we do, we don't have a second round pick. So that's the scary thing is usually there's a great value pick in the second round. You got Mackenzie Alexander there. You got, uh, Brian O'Neill there. Um, you know, you got Dalvin cook there, but you know, is there going to be another guy there to get, or can we trade a couple picks? Do we trade back in the first round and say, let's go get a second round pick. If one of our guys that we really want, um, is not there. You know, you got some good DNs coming out. You got some decent offensive tackles. I mean, other than the kid uh, with Sewell, Sewell or whatever out of Oregon, um, you know, there's no, nobody's jumping off the board like, oh my God, I got to go get that tackle. You know, this is not that year. You got Christian Derrishaw, a name that's come up for the Vikings. You know, if he's there, do you go get him if he's still there, you know, at 12, 13? Uh, Rashawn Slater, smaller, undersized guy at Northwestern. But again, Kubiak's dad, Gary, you look at the Denver Broncos when Ben uh, Hamilton was there from the Minnesota Vikings, or sorry, the Minnesota Gophers, but he was with the Denver Broncos. They never had a guard center over 305 pounds. And so, and then their tackles were as well. They were just long, smaller guys. They didn't have a big 360 pound, you know, Trent Williams type tackle because in that Denver Broncos system, the zone read, they need their linemen to be a little bit more mobile to get to the second level, to double team. And so when you're looking at that, a guy like Rashawn Slater who can move, who can play guard, center, and tackle, he's done it at Northwestern, he's another guy. you know. But do you drop back because 
technically he's not a true first rounder. Um, the way the draft pans out, he might end up, you know, kind of down in that late first round. So do you trade back knowing he could be the guy to go get and then say, you know what, let's grab a second round if we can make this trade. So Rick Spielman has a ton of, you know, work to do. Um, but again, like last year when we were watching the draft and all these trades and changes were made, I think it's going to be the same year for the Vikings where Rick's going to be watching. And if his guy is there, he'll get him. But if not, he's ready and already preparing to make that trade. Ron, that was awesome, man. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, no, thank you. There he is. Ron Johnson played with the Gophers, played in the NFL with the Ravens, becoming a media star, especially uh, in the Minneapolis area. And you heard him uh, more than a few times on some Mountain West Conference games. And I got to follow up on that about the offensive lineman. We got to ask Adam Hill about what's going on in those teens with the old lineman if there's not someone obvious to select. And I also think it's really interesting. This goes back to the conversation we had with Ron probably about four months ago, and I brought up Rashad Bateman. I was like, eh, I don't know. He mentioned him again as a first-rounder, but uh, apparently Bateman, by the numbers, is probably going to slip a little bit. Visit Cofield's Corner on LVSportsNetwork.com for access to the latest podcasts and best interviews. Now, back to Cofield and Company, live from the Finley Toyota Studio on ESPN Las Vegas. Adam, could you run a 4-5 as a wide receiver going into the NFL draft and have anything uh, but slip happen, if I can speak English? Rashad Bateman, the Minnesota receiver, is a big guy. But when you run like that, I know Ron Johnson was just making a case for him. He, he's going to slip, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, th- I think it's not the be-all, end-all. It's not the determining factor all the time. But uh, certainly it it raises some concerns. And then, uh, you know, obviously without a combine and not everything is equal now, yeah. Um, it should be a more favorable setting to run in, but uh, that, that would be a bit of a concern. The Vikings are an interesting team to follow, and we're doing our path to the draft. We just talked to Ron Johnson, who played uh, with the Ravens, played in the NFL, went to uh, Minnesota. It's a radio TV guy in Minneapolis. The Vikings are interesting because if the Vikings do address one of their big needs, which is offensive line, they could potentially steal a Raiders target. You mentioned yesterday all the mock drafts now have the Raiders – going after offensive line. Was Ron on to something there that, you know what, don't take offensive line in the first? Uh, Raiders aren't in the same position as the Vikings. Raiders actually have their second-round pick. Should the Raiders refrain from trying to fill a need versus just getting the best player available? I think it's a tiebreaker. I think needs are tiebreakers to me, uh, especially especially in the first round, where – if you if you're looking at a couple of players, if you have some player way ahead of everybody on your board, then well, you take them. You take them no matter well, what. Well, well, that with this with this organization, well, well, I mean that's what you should do. I, it doesn't necessarily mean you're right, but if you think one player is much better than you know, I, I mean you know, if you think one player is warranted of going in the first round, and everybody else in the world thinks he's a third rounder, uh, maybe you should reevaluate how you do your process. But um, if you do, I mean, if you have somebody way high on your board, I think you take them. Uh, but if you have two guys that are somewhat equal and one of them is in a position of you know desperate need, I think you take that. By the way, I I, I thought I was just looking it up. Bateman ran a four three four three nine in his pro day. Oh, he did. I'm I'm looking at. I was looking at another uh, thing that said a a four five four or four five one. And I think so. that's what they expected. I think that's why it was kind of stunning that he ran the four three nine. Oh, that was fa- It was faster than they expected because he's about six two two ten. He's a big guy. Yeah. Yeah, four right, three nine is pretty insane. And, and Ron's on Ron's on to something. Maybe he is going to move up the boards. I, I wouldn't I don't think I'd have him as my fourth receiver. 
Do you know offhand who do you have as your fourth receiver? Um, I would, I'd have to look up my uh my all my notes. You you um, have the you have the normal top three as your top as your top three Chase and then uh, Devonta Smith. Well, I have a I have a top one. Okay, so that's I Chase. Mean, Chase is so far above and beyond everybody else. Um, the other I, guys in the running for the four slot would be Kadarius Tony. I know you've talked about. Yeah. Um, who else is in there? Adwell. He's a tiny guy, right? He's more of a speed yeah. guy. He's gonna fall because because of the size. Okay. Rondell Moore is actually not much bigger. Is he moving up or down? I think uh, he seems to be moving down a little bit. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I like I like a lot of these guys. I think there's a lot of talented players. I just think there's a one man class in Jamar Chase. Um, I think Waddle is is pretty close, and Devonta Smith is pretty close. I, I do think there's gonna be teams concerned about um, the the frame, but I'm not that concerned with it. Um, I do think I think Elijah Moore is right there in that four spot, uh, the Ole Miss kid. Um, I think Bateman also is, especially with this. Uh, if, if you're going to eliminate any kind of speed concerns, if you're going to look at the four three nine as, hey, this this was very very impressive and above everybody and above what everybody thought he would do. Uh, I think I think that's going to put him in. If that and listen, I wasn't timing it. I wasn't there. I don't know if everybody kind of has the same read on that time. And had the same time as four three nine, and that's what he ran. He'll be the fourth guy. Three six four eleven hundred three six four one one zero zero. Caller number eleven, you get a two foot classic sub from Porta Subs, twenty four inches of premium meats and cheeses, and all the goodies piled high on your favorite fresh baked bread. It's a slam dunk. Still NBA going on. I know that's more of a, a college dealio, but order your sub today. We got uh, plenty of great sporting events to watch, like the Masters, Porta Subs. Sub giveaway, caller 11-364-1100. Join the conversation on Twitter at ESPN Las Vegas. We needed to, to score some goals. Lots of skips between the circles. Stone finds it, works it out high. Martinez, a wrist shot, score! We wanted to get rewarded for, for going to those areas, and, you know, that's got to become part of our DNA every night as a team. Puck comes around, they score! Alec Martinez, his second goal of the game. It's his seventh of the year. Vegas leads 3-1. It's time for VGK ringside reporter Stormy Bonantoni on Cofield & Company. My God, that dude was good, isn't he? Wow. Ass kicking last night. Nice job by the Golden Knights. Wonderful job. Adam, I know you like to mock on me for being closer to a boomer than a Gen Xer. Does having a selfie stick give me more legitimacy as a Gen Xer, or am I closer to a boomer? Adam's going to answer any second now. I'm going to take this one. It's boomer. You think? I do, yes. All right. Well, I've got a story about a selfie stick coming up after Stormy. Stormy's with us. Hey, Stormy. Hey, how's it going? It's good. You can hear all our audio quality is awesome today. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that that's par for the course when you're talking about a selfie stick, so. Um, well, should I tell you the selfie stick story? Because it's actually kind of interesting. I was very happy because I don't throw anything out. So I bought this selfie stick, and then I got it, and I'm like, I'm ugly. I don't want to take selfies of myself. Why did I buy this? 
And then today I had to go out to UNLV football practice and we're still doing the distancing thing. And I'm like, I don't own a boom mic. All right. So what I did today was put the phone on the selfie stick, hook it up with a high quality microphone. And then I sat there very comfortably at six feet with like the mic right up in the players and the coaches grill. I was very proud of myself. That You should be. I actually, I'm going to give you some props for that. I think that's a super good use of a selfie stick. I didn't think that that idea could come from you, but lo and behold. <laughs> you know, I, I appreciate that. It feels like a little bit of a backhanded compliment, and it's more than it feels like it. I think it is. I think it is. Well, I was watching you. Uh, well, it's weird. I, I was going to say I was watching you do the one-on-one with Alec Martinez, but it's it's still weird when you're just off to the side, and you know, I know you're there, and Alec is looking at you. It's just I can't figure it out, but it, it was a good night for him, no doubt about it. Oh, yeah, no question. And it is kind of a funny situation um, where, like, I, I'm still at a, at a distance. I still have a mask on and everything, but it is it is really nice, and it makes a difference, I think, to at least be able to make eye contact versus being, a you know, a speaker and a player talking just to a camera or to a wall. But good for Alec. I mean, he's having the best offensive year of his career. He defensively has been such a, a huge component for the Golden Knights. He leads the league in block shots by a mile. Everybody screaming in the locker room last night after the game, uh, warrior, warrior, warrior in the locker room. And Nick Holden did it again to him in the press conference. So um, he's playing some really, really good hockey right now and really cool to see him get rewarded with a two-goal night for the second time in his career last night. Um, And to see the group get back on the winning track with an important offensive performance. Yeah, not just on the winning track, but a barrage of goals for the Golden Knights. It's been a while since we've seen that. Were you starting to sense some frustration in terms of the offensive uh, lack of production? Yeah, I, I no question. I think that um, when you're getting the chances and opportunities and you feel like you're putting the effort in and should be winning games and ultimately don't leave a rink with a result, three games in a row, which is extremely uncharacteristic for this year's Golden Knights team. It's the only time it's happened since they've been coached by Pete DeBoer in the regular season. Um, that there's, It's natural for there to be some frustration. And Pete DeBoer challenged all of the players in that room to have more of a net front presence, to be able to get pucks through, to put yourself in a position to be able to do that. And the team delivered. You know, they had a little bit of a slower start than they wanted to in the the first five to ten minutes of the game last night. And then it was off to the races after that. And for them to be able to see, again, that they can produce that type of offense when they play to their strengths and do things right, I think was, was really, really important for overall team confidence and to not let that frustration kind of take over. Uh, what was it like for Alex Petrangelo in St. Louis? You know, it it's interesting with him because you can tell he tries really, really hard not to let any emotions get to him, that he was coming here to do a job. He said that, you know, it's before the game and after the game when you really think about it and feel it because when you're on the ice, like, you're playing hockey. It's something you've done your whole life. You have to go out there and be competitive and play your best game. But for this first time for him back in St. Louis, in the place where he has – family he had his children he met his wife he um you know was there for his entire career and was the only captain in blues history to lift the family cup over his head it's obviously a place that means so much to him and he said too for the you know until that first tv timeout when he knew that the the video tribute was going to be played he was a little bit more uneasy um and then after he got that out of the way he was able to take in the tribute take in the moment and then 
again, get back to hockey because um, he said that he, he really felt like he could settle in a lot more after that. And it's completely understandable. And it, nice to see him get an assist. I was really, really pulling when they had the eruption of goals, pulling for him to, to be able to get one on the board himself, but an assist no less. Um, and a really, really good night for him. I think for anybody going into you know their old city, Obviously, all of the Golden Knights players in year one had to do that, and almost everybody on this team at some point has had to go face their former team in their old building. It's an emotional moment. I mean, we remember Mark Stone doing that in Ottawa last year. It, it means a lot, and nice to see him come out on the winning end. He, he's won a lot of games in that building. <laughs> uh, yeah, for sure, and St. Louis is not winning a lot of games without him. Uh, do you feel like uh, St. Louis has been impacted by not having him around? You know, I, I think that it's an interesting situation um, because obviously Alex Petrangelo has had to have a transition period here with the Golden Knights. It's not like you just snap your fingers despite him being one of the best defensemen in the NHL and it's all sunshine and rainbows and you just connect. Like, there's a transition process, and I think the Blues are dealing with that with Tori Krug as well um, because he's obviously a tremendous athlete and, and defenseman in the league, and again, you just can't turn it on and off all the time. It doesn't always work that way. And so they're having a little bit of a lull right now, but I don't think that it's, it's just, you know, the skill that you miss. He was their captain. He was, you know, the heart and soul type of a guy. And when you listen to Craig Berube talk after the game yesterday, he was talking all about will, you know, and that the, that's a blues team that needs to stick together and, and keep working. And, um, you know, those are usually the things that you hear, a captain kind of preaching in a room and, and I'm sure Ryan O'Reilly and you know is doing that as well. But you can sense and I think in those types of areas where a presence like that might be missed. But it's also the National Hockey League. It's hard to win games in this league and every team and every player is gonna have a little bit of a drought or a lull and right now St. Louis is in a bigger hole I'm sure than they expected to be at this point. That is Stormy Bonatoni. You can hear see her on the broadcast, you can hear her on radio, on the Game Misconduct Podcast, pretty much just everywhere. The media superstar uh, that is Stormy Bonatoni. Uh, Tomas Nosek scored again. That's three goals in the last five games. He is red hot. He's up to 13 points on the year uh, after you know 17 and 15 the last two years. So he's almost reached uh, that point total that he's had uh, in each of the last couple seasons. He's been great. It's been quite a year for Tomas Nosek, though. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of crazy to think that in that 18-19 season, he had career highs and goals, assists, and points with the 17 that you mentioned, and that took almost 70 games for him to reach that point. And despite the 14-game pointless streak that he had to start the year after scoring a goal in the very first game of the season, to do what he's done since coming back from COVID-19 is so impressive to me. He always just talks about playing a simple game, just trying not to do too much right now, doing whatever he can to chip in and be in a position to help the team win. And it's all the cliches, but he's really doing it. And he's really working really hard. And with the trade deadline obviously approaching, I feel like the biggest thing that everybody has been talking about with the Golden Knights over the last month is that they need more depth scoring. Well, I mean, right now it's been the depth scoring that's huh. been making the difference for this team. I mean, it's, it's Mark Stone and Max Pacioretty who haven't had the point production that they had in March now since we flipped the script to April. I mean, very uncharacteristic for a guy like Stone to have just two assists in the last six games. But meanwhile, Tomas Nosek is 
reeling off points every night. And um, I think that's a really good place for the Golden Knights to be in if you can start getting your top-end guys producing at the rate we've seen them do and have a guy like Tomas Nosek and Will Carrier and those guys chip in more often than not. Huge bump. Does it feel different this year? Kind of being around, like, it seems like every year, right around the trade deadline, everybody's like, oh, what are the Knights going to do? What big name are they going to go get? And this year it kind of seems like, well, they're up against the cap. They don't have a whole lot of move room to move. I mean, they might be able to do something, but really this seems like the roster. So it just kind of feels a little bit different knowing that this is probably the team. 100% with you there. Um, the cap constraints this year after going out and getting Alex Petrangelo this offseason and given the COVID season that it is, um, you know, it's just there's not a whole lot of wiggle room, as you said, which is really the perfect way to put it. And I like the way that Pete DeBoer has framed it the two times he's really been asked about the trade deadline is that, of course, as a head coach, there's always things that you can look at and want to improve in your team. And maybe there is somebody out there who could come in and improve your team. But if he's going to war in the postseason and fighting with a, for a Stanley Cup with this group, he is completely fine with that. You know, this is a group that has really come together this season. And maybe this last three-game stretch is the first time they've faced some on-ice wins and loss type of adversity for the year. But most of their adversity has been off the ice with COVID-19 and in and out of hotels and <laughs> different <laughs> injuries to Alex Petrangelo, to Robin Leonard, to Shea Theodore, to, to big-name players. And they've been able to come through it to be still second in the division and um, – and putting themselves in a really good position, I think, for the postseason, that, yeah, it feels different come trade deadline, that they're not out there seeing if they can get a Max Pacioretty or, you know, a name like that. But I think that they're fine with that because of the core group that they have. It's, it's a good group, and it's a group that, as Alex Martinez uh, has said a couple of times, having experience on Stanley Cup teams, it's a group that likes each other and is willing to fight for each other. And that's kind of one of those intangible qualities of a real contending team that he feels is important that this group has. The, you know, you mentioned, we mentioned the trade deadlines coming up. We're getting down to the stretch of the season. It's still early. There's a long way to go. But Colorado doesn't lose. Like, do you get the sense that there's any scoreboard <laughs> watching at all of, like, can this team lose so you can make up ground at some point? Well, I mean, we're hoping so, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, they are looking pretty unstoppable right now. Even Pete DeBoer has said Colorado is a team that doesn't look like they're going to lose the rest of the way, just the way that they've been playing. Um, but I think I've said this to you guys before. It doesn't necessarily matter, who, it, at least in my opinion, who gets the number one seed um, because – I think that for the Golden Knights specifically, like you know that you're going to be playing a difficult team in that top four. Um, I think that everybody expected St. Louis to be in that top four, and they've dropped un pretty surprisingly out of that conversation. But I don't think – I think top seed is nice, but I don't think it's really super necessary outside of maybe confidence. But if the Golden Knights still are able to get that, that two spot and be able to get some – um, you know, home advantage in the first round. I think that's really the key just to get off to a good start. And with Colorado, they're just such a tough team. And I think that ultimately come postseason, a really big factor that we're not sure how it'll work out yet is Philip Grubauer and what Colorado is going to do in terms of their goaltending because the biggest perk I think the Golden Knights have on their side is that they do have 
the rest option with two elite goaltenders and Mark Andre Fleury and Robin Leonard. And Colorado hasn't really had that. And while Philip Grubauer has said numerous times he feels great, he loves playing all these games. Like I don't know how realistic that is down the stretch. So I think the the Golden Knights kind of saving grace when it comes to the postseason is really going to be that goaltending matchup. Stormy. All right, we'll see hey. you, Stormy. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> exactly. I like that. Open. We had, a, we had that kind of open a couple of weeks ago, and I, I said to the audience I was going to start doing that to every guest, just yell their name and see what happens. Because you reacted so well. You know you know what it's like. Like when your parents yell at you and they just start yelling your name, you're like, all right, what? You know, just we don't have – we can get the niceties out of the way. We don't have to say hello every time. No, just Stormy. There you go. <laughs> yep. and you're like, okay, what's going on? See you, Stormy. Bye. Thanks, guys. Adam. Actually, we need to do that today because uh, we've, we've, we've had trouble communicating, so I'm just going to yep. yell your name rather than go with an elaborate question and then be like, is he there? Well, I was there, and I was just frozen. It was perfect. Uh, <laughs> and I was talking, and I'm like, why are you not responding to me? Uh, Stormy's name works better to just yell, though. Not like mine. Oh, is not it really totally a, does. Yeah. Totally I does. Know, it just doesn't make sense. Steve! It just doesn't make sense. Uh, I don't know. It made sense in my household. <laughs> okay. Just yell that at me. Steve, that was Steven. I'm sure. No, it actually wasn't. Yeah, it was something different. It was actually Stevie. Visit Cofield's Corner on LVSportsNetwork.com for access to the latest podcasts and best interviews.